And I think Mel Gibson's portrayal of Pilot is quite good. Uh, often Pilot gets this reputation of being a bit of a softy, being a bit of a jelly spine, uh, wanting to please the crowd, not quite sure which way to go, and wanting to keep everybody happy. That's not really who Pilot was at all. He was a pretty brutal character. His position in Palestine, his title was a prefect. Not like the prefects you have at secondary school. Uh, he was like a governor. Think of him like a governor. Uh, in the Roman Empire, the way that they would rule is uh, they divided it up into territories, and some areas the Romans would rule indirectly through kings, local kings, that they would trust to administer justice in that particular province. That's how it was with Herod, King Herod, a little bit further north in Galilee. But there were some areas in Palestine that the Romans considered too volatile to be left in the hands of client kings and uh, local rulers. And in these areas, they would send in one of their own. And uh, since Herod the Great died in 4 BC, that's how the Romans had run the province of Judea, which included the city of Jerusalem. They'd run it directly. And for 10 years, Pilate, Pontius Pilate was that guy. He was stationed there in Judea, administering justice over that province. And in one sense, this was a pretty good, pretty good gig for Pilate. Uh, he was on his way up, he was climbing the chain, and to be in his role, to be the governor of a Roman province was pretty impressive. But on the other hand, it was a stinking little outpost in the corner of the empire that meant nothing and was full of these people that the Romans didn't understand, these Jews. And Pilate, this was not his world. The Jewish people, he didn't get them. For him, they were just an impetuous people group. He didn't get their God. He didn't get their story. He didn't understand where they had been and who they were and why. They were asking for what they were asking for. He didn't get Yahweh. And for him, the world of Pilate was the world of Rome. It was the world of Caesar. It was the world of Caesar Augustus. It was the world of, of military might and power. It was Caesar who called himself the son of a God, who marked the beginning of what the Romans considered the good news. Caesar who brought peace on earth, the Pax Romana, and brought it at the edge of a sword. It was the world of, of conquest, it was a world of might, it was a world of dominance. That was Pilate's world. And really, Pilate only cared about two things. Getting the taxes paid and maintaining social stability. That was it. And if he could just ride it out, making sure the money kept flowing to Caesar and making sure there wasn't any major uprisings, then he would be rewarded and he would be eventually promoted. Already Pilate had received two warnings from Caesar for various uprisings within the province, times when the Jews tried to revolt, tried to take power back, and Pilate had responded with brutality, but still not enough or not adequately, and so his job was already on the line. So Pilate, in this instance, really doesn't care about pleasing people. He doesn't care about pleasing the Jews. He doesn't care about trying to be someone who gains the approval of other people. All he cares about is keeping the peace. All he cares about is maintaining social order. And so one morning, one Friday morning, and remember this is during the Passover festival. So Pilate's in Jerusalem and he made sure he was in Jerusalem every Passover because it was such a volatile time. 
And on this Friday morning, the Jewish leaders come to him outside his palace, out in the, out in the courtyard outside his palace, and they bring with him them this bedraggled prisoner. And let's just read how this scene unfolds. In Mark 15, we'll just read a few verses to start with. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. So these Jewish leaders have brought Jesus and... Uh, in their minds, what they've got to secure is a charge against Jesus that's going to matter to Pilate. They can't, as Mark Strom detailed last week, they can't just charge him with blasphemy. Pilate doesn't care about that. So if you read Luke's account, what they actually string Jesus up on is the charge of one, stopping the payment of taxes to Caesar, and two, claiming to be a king. The very two things that Pilate cares about. That's exactly what they say to Pilate as their charge against Jesus. And of course, if Jesus is claiming to be a king, he's no king from Rome, so he's usurping the authority, and he's usurping the rank of the empire. So now Pilate's got a problem. Now Jesus has become an issue for Pilate. And Pilate simply says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he says it probably with a bit of tongue-in-cheek, because here's Jesus in chains, already beaten and bloodied, and, and Pilate asks him, you know, really what he's saying is, who's, who's really in charge here? Is it you? You're really the king of these people? Are you really the one that they're answering to? Or is it me? Who, who's actually got the power? And Pilate, knowing full well, here's Pilate with the power of life and death in his hands, the, the power to send Jesus off to execution. And he says, so are you really the king of the Jews? Are you this person that's going to rule over this mob? And Jesus, look how he replies, just four words. He says, you have said so. Maybe a more literal translation is, those are your words. And Jesus puts it back on Pilate's plate. He's not going to deny the fact that he's a king, but he's not going to reinforce Pilate's understanding of what a king is. Jesus is a king, but he's not the kind of king that Pilate's used to, one that takes power and control and is all about dominance, might, and military victories. That's not the king Jesus is, and yet he is a king. But he doesn't explain any of that. In fact, one of the things that's interesting about the gospel accounts is how little Jesus says when he's standing before Pilate and when he's standing before Herod. He doesn't really try and defend himself. When you think how easy that could have been, how confused the Jewish testimony against him was, how many contradictory witnesses there were, how bizarre the charges were, how easily refuted they would have been, how basic it would have been for Jesus simply to say, look, this is, this is rubbish, where's the evidence? Show me when I've tried to stop the payment of taxes. Show me when I've tried to usurp Roman authority. Show me. And yet he doesn't say any of that. And there's something, when I read this story, there's something in me that wants Jesus to speak up. Wants him to say something. Some word of self-defense. But he doesn't do any of that. He simply stays silent. And we're told that Pilate was amazed. Probably not amazed as an impressed, but amazed that this man was not offering any defense of himself. 
Keep your thumb in Mark 15 for a second and flick back to Isaiah 53. I want to read a couple of words of this prophecy in Isaiah 53. It's an ancient prophecy about 800 years old by the time Jesus is born. This ancient oracle that the Jews would have known and would have read a lot and would have been in their minds. And as I read just one verse from Isaiah 53, see if you can hear any echoes of Jesus' trial before Pilate. Isaiah 53 verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Can you hear any links to this trial before Pilate? I think Mark's trying to tell us something. I think Mark's trying to, trying to give us, in the midst of his description of Jesus' trial before Pilate, give us something of a signpost back to Isaiah 53. Give us an indication that this person standing before this governor is the one that Isaiah talked about in this ancient prophecy. Is this, in Isaiah, Isaiah is describing a servant, it's named the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant, and, and one of the things about this servant is he suffers and he's, he's punished and he's afflicted, but he doesn't open his mouth. And Mark is telling us this Jesus is that suffering servant. And Mark wants us to see this trial of Jesus against the backdrop of that servant prophecy, that servant song. In Isaiah 53, this is the one. And when you start reading Isaiah 53, which is a great place to start for understanding how Jesus would have seen his death and would have understood what was happening to him. When you start reading Isaiah 53 as a backdrop to Jesus' suffering and Jesus' passion, some of the other things in this trial scene start falling into place. Let me read you one other verse from Isaiah 53. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. The idea here is this exchange, this substitution. What we know about the suffering servant in Isaiah is that he didn't just suffer for himself, he suffered on behalf of others. He suffered for the sake of others. He suffered in the place of Others And there is this great exchange that the servant suffers and therefore others, and we're not quite sure who the others are in Isaiah 53, but this other group of people get to go free and are released and are justified. Now go back to Mark 15 with that in your mind and have a look at what happens next. You have the entry of this character, Barabbas. You saw him in the clip. This prisoner, probably someone who had been involved in these very uprisings that Pilate had tried to crush, probably a zealot, someone who believed that the kingdom of God was going to come by force, that the way to get rid of these Romans was through military power and trying to get the militia up in arms so that we can turf out these pagan rulers. And here's Barabbas, who's been arrested in the course of one of those uprisings and is now on death row, on trial for his life. And Pilate apparently had this custom whereby every year he would release one prisoner to the Jewish people, maybe as a way of appeasing them, maybe as a way of keeping the social stability of the region. And so Pilate thinks, here's a way 
for me to release a prisoner in accordance with this and yet still find Jesus guilty so that I'm not chickening out of what these people are asking of me in regard to Jesus. I can still find him guilty. I can still sentence him, but then we'll use this little loophole to let him go free so that Pilate doesn't have to go through with crucifying someone he knows to be an innocent man. And so he says to them, shall I release to you Jesus? We've got this custom. We've got this tradition. Let's make him the the prisoner that gets to go free. But the Jewish leaders stir up the crowd to petition Pilate instead to let Barabbas go free. And there's an incredible irony in this when you think about it. Barabbas, who is an actual threat to Pilate, who has actually done the things Jesus is accused of doing, and yet the chief priests are asking for his release, while at the same time asking for Jesus to be crucified, one who has done none of that, who poses no threat to Rome at all, and yet apparently these religious leaders so concerned with justice and with protecting the empire and what a threat Jesus is, this is the way it's being presented to Pilate, and yet they've got no problem over here with saying, well, let's just release Barabbas, who's a real threat, who really um, threatens the stability of the region. And you see in this, I think, some of the hypocrisy of these people that bring Jesus for trial, that really they don't give a rip about justice. They don't give a rip about who's threatening the social stability. They have got their guy they want to see executed, and the only reason they're standing before Pilate is because the Jewish leaders can't crucify him themselves. They don't have the power of the sword. Only Rome is able to execute people. So they need to get a Roman trial. They need to have a civil trial and have Pilate find him guilty. And so Pilate eventually does cave in, not because he's wanting to win favor with the Jews, but because the crowd is threatening to revolt, and so he lets Barabbas go. And if you see all this against the backdrop of the suffering servant, it starts to become very personal for us, because if Jesus is that suffering servant, then Barabbas is who? Us, you and I, we are Barabbas. We are the ones, you and I, who are guilty of treason, just as Jesus was accused of being. We are the ones guilty of high treason against the God of the universe, the God who created us, you and I. We stand before him as our judge and we are guilty. We've turned to our own way. We've acted selfishly. We've ignored and rejected God, and we've all done this, and we all do this all the time. Those of us, every one of us, we have gone and acted in ways that are independent from the ways that we were created. We've trampled over other people. We've acted selfishly, and we stand condemned before God. We have no evidence in our favor. We have no one to support us. We have no chance of getting free. We simply are condemned before God, as Barabbas was before Pilate. And yet here is the suffering servant who stands in our place and for us goes to the cross and for us is executed. And you see that moment in the clip we played before where Barabbas is released and there's that moment when his eye catches Jesus' eye and all of his gloating and his boasting about being released, suddenly he realizes 
It's at the expense of this prisoner. It's at the cost to this man here. And he doesn't know Jesus. But you wonder what was going through his mind at that point. Here's Barabbas being released. But he is going to be crucified in my place. And that's us, you know, we are Barabbas. And we stand in that same place, catching Jesus' eye and realizing he is going to be executed. And it should have been us. There's a Jewish tradition that says, uh, we don't know what happened to Barabbas after that, but there's, a, there's an old tradition that says he followed along the crowd that went and watched Jesus' crucifixion and just hung at the back watching what unfolded. And you can imagine if that happened, imagine what it must have been like for Barabbas as he walked the street and, 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 and saw Jesus carrying this crossbeam that was actually made for Barabbas. What was he thinking this guy is carrying my cross. It should have been me carrying that cross. He's carrying it in my place. And we are Barabbas. He carried that cross in our place. He carried it for you and he carried it for me. Imagine Barabbas standing at the foot of the cross looking up as Jesus hung on it that Friday afternoon between two other guys that most probably were Barabbas's co-conspirators. And Barabbas was supposed to be the guy hanging in the middle there between two other criminals. And yet here he is watching Jesus writhing in pain, breathing his last breaths. And Barabbas would have thought he's hanging there in my place. It should have been me hanging there, but it's him hanging there in our place. You and I, we are Barabbas. It should have been us hanging on that cross. It should have been us strung up there to die. That's what we deserve. It's not a comfortable reality, but that's what we are deserving of. And yet he hung there in our place. When you start to put yourself in Barabbas' sandals for a while, it starts to change you, doesn't it? It starts to change the way you think. It starts to chip away at your own sense of self-entitlement, your own sense of deserving, your own sense of self-justification, your own sense of rights, what I'm owed, what I'm deserved, starts to humble you a little bit, starts to break down some of that pride, starts to make you incredibly grateful for what you actually have. Because we're so much about our rights and what we deserve and what other people owe us and we forget that we stand in Barabbas' place, that our story is Jesus' story, that we follow one who was the suffering servant who gave his life up for us. The Lord punished and afflicted him because of us. He laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All of a sudden, our rights and what we think we're owed and what we think we deserve fades into insignificance. A few weeks ago I was at a petrol station and I was inside just about to pay for my petrol and there were two counters that were open, two uh, people serving at these counters and there was a customer at each counter. And so I was next in line and I thought, and don't tell me you haven't done this, I thought how can I make sure that I'm going to be the next person? <laughs> Served. I didn't want to stand behind any particular one because then what if the other one came free first? So what I did is the, um, I, I, I created a communal line 
just one step back from the counter. I began a communal line so that whoever was, came free first, I could go that way or I could go that way. The, the communal line strategy. Then what happened is as I was waiting for the person, the next teller to be, to be free, a woman came into the store and she didn't realize the communal line strategy was going on. <laughs> Admittedly, I was the only one in that line, but she still didn't, didn't realize what was happening. And she just went and waited behind, directly behind one of the counters. So here I am now in no man's land, and she's made her own line over here, and then to add insult to injury, her guy comes free first. <laughs> so now she's being served, and I'm still in no man's land, forming some communal line that I'm, only the, one, I'm the only one in. And uh, I didn't say anything, being a nice guy, but uh, I thought it, you know. And you've thought it, you've been there, you know how it is. I had her whole life history mapped out, you know. Probably a gang member, neglected childhood. You know, this woman, the things she's done before, she does this in every gas station, has no respect for people, she's a terrible person. I just slated her in my mind. I tore her to pieces up here. I know, I wish, I wish you had a better pasta too, but you don't, you got me. And, that, and, and I came away from that feeling pretty bad about myself because it, it was a trigger for me to realize what a strong sense of you know, entitlement I had, wanting to be that guy that was right there and how much I felt I deserved that and how ripped off I felt when someone else stole that place in line. It made me realize, man, we really do stand on our rights, don't we? And we come away with this massive sense of injustice if anyone violates my rights in any way. You know, it's the, it's the situation when you have two lanes of traffic merging. You've been here too, I know. And you know they're going to merge in 200 metres, and so most motorists have already merged into one lane. And there's one lane that's chocker now and one lane that's empty. But some joker comes tearing down the lane that is empty and merges just before the cone itself <laughs> that closes the lane off, screams in like 20 cars ahead of you, this is why road rage happens, people. You know how you feel about that. I know how I feel about that. We get so up in arms and so frustrated. These are good times to remember. We are Barabbas. You know, That's, we, we're following a different story because you've got to choose how you respond, and we all do. You've got to choose how you respond in those situations. And they're good times to come back to this story and just remind ourselves we stood in Barabbas' place, we deserve nothing. We, we deserve judgment and condemnation and death. We don't have rights. We might have rights as a citizen of the country, but we have in the kingdom of heaven, what rights do you and I have? We don't. We've laid them down. And we've been freed. And we've been released. And we've been given what we don't deserve. We've been given freedom and forgiveness and grace and mercy that was unexpected and undeserved and incredibly bountiful. And when you start soaking yourself in that story, it does change that sharp sense of self-entitlement that you and I carry around with us. And it's even harder in those situations when we are really attacked by people. It's one thing to do this in a petrol station or in the car, but it's another thing when people really come against you and really insult you and criticize you and, and unfairly um, attack you over things. A lot of the Christians in the first century had this all the time, and there's a passage, let me finish with this, in First Peter, that speaks to exactly this situation and brings in exactly this same story of Jesus in his trial and how this gives us an example to follow. In 1 Peter 2, 21 
To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. That's a quote from Isaiah 53, by the way. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Isn't it amazing the way Peter brings together precisely these two passages we've looked at this morning, Jesus' trial, and then reaches right back to Isaiah 53, brings that all together and says, now, Jesus is not just the one who saved you, he is also your exemplar, he is also your model in these situations. Just as he was the suffering servant, so this is a way, this is the way that you and I can now respond when we're in those situations of attack and ambush, and uh, when people are demanding something of us that's just not right and just not fair. And you've, you and I have been there when we've been criticized, when someone's demanded an apology from you that you haven't felt the need to give, and they own nothing on their side, when someone wants you to take responsibility for things that they should rightfully be taking responsibility of, when someone's wanting something out of you, and yet on their side they're accepting nothing. And those situations they stir up in us such, a, such an injustice. Do you find that? That you walk away from those conversations feeling so there's such an injustice about this. That person should realize the errors that they're making about me. When you hear people talking about you behind your back, you want to correct that misinformation. You want to make sure they know. You want to call every foul. And if they're tearing your reputation apart, you want them to realize and to have all that stopped, and you want them brought to justice. That is who we are. And yet here's Peter taking the story of Jesus' trial and saying, we can entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. We don't have to take it into our hands. Because just as Jesus was silent before his accusers, so we can be before ours. That doesn't mean we shirk responsibility, and it doesn't mean we, we're not accountable to people. But it means you and I don't have to defend ourselves to everyone that wants a piece of us. We don't have to take justice into our hands because justice was taken care of on the cross. And just as Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, so you and I can leave justice at the cross and lay that down. There's a psalm, a verse in the Psalms that I've had to come back to a lot in my life, which says, my vindication comes from you, O God. And I think that's really important because a lot of the time we want to be vindicated in the eyes of another person. It's so important they see that I'm not at fault here, that they get it right, that they re they've got a, such a skewed perspective of the situation, it needs to be corrected. And I've had to come back and say, my vindication comes from you, O oh God. I don't need to be vindicated in the eyes of that person. If they have a faulty idea about me, if they carry around some errors of fact, if they have misinformation, if their perspective is warped, if they're not prepared to take responsibility, God, I give that to you. The only thing that matters is that my conscience is clear before the Lord. That's it. And I think that's the spirit that Jesus embodied when he stood before Pilate. That he didn't feel any compulsion or need. Perhaps he felt it, but he didn't act on it. To defend himself, to try and correct the errors of fact, and try and say these charges are bogus, 
He simply entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And though doing that might leave us with a real sense of injustice in the present, we know that the day will come when God will right the wrongs and he'll bring justice into situations where there's been injustice, but we can leave that to him. And we can lay that down, lay down our need for self-justification, self-legitimation and everybody knowing what's really going on, and we can simply say, God, my vindication comes from you. We can entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shaw Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz. Thank you.